I'm Angeline Francis. And I'm Aldonado. From HuffPost Canada, you're listening to Born and Raised, a podcast about second-generation Canadians. Today, we're talking about the boss of the kitchen. The queen of the culinary. The ruler of our bellies. It's our mom's cooking episode. My mom is a badass, honestly. I, I can't really put it any other way. When I started getting getting into um, like punk and alternative and metal music when I was like, I don't know, 15, 16, she was kind of weirded out by it at first, but then suddenly like the more we listened to it in the car, because um, I was always DJ as she was driving, she just like started liking it. And uh, she's the one who follows all the blogs and figures out when all the shows are. And now she listens to like more heavy stuff than I do um, usually, which is weird. I think she just really appreciates the the like raw emotion of it and the honesty of it which fits for her because she is a very she's very upfront it's like what you see is what you get she'll tell you what she thinks all the time if something pisses her off she'll talk about it tasha stansbury's mom comes from lebanon and has an armenian background her dad is anglo quebecois tasha grew up eating what her mother whipped up in the kitchen which was mostly lebanese cuisine a few years back, Tasha made a dietary choice that has forever changed how her mom cooks. I couldn't reconcile my uh, my interpretation of myself as an animal lover with being a meat eater at the same time. So I gave up meat when I was 13. I thought veganism was a little bit extreme um, at first. Tasha became vegan, but she didn't realize giving up meat, eggs, and dairy also meant giving up her favorite Lebanese dishes. It wasn't a conscious decision where I was like, okay, well, if I go vegan, I'm never gonna eat Lebanese food again. It was just kind of a slow realization after I had made that decision where I was like, oh, wait, the next time we go over to Tita's, I'm not gonna be able to eat this and this and this. And my grandmother would ask me like, oh, do you want me to make like your old favorite dishes? And then it was suddenly like, wait, that has eggs and dairy in it? And that was my favorite thing. And that just kept happening again and again. And it was, really upsetting at the beginning but I had I had made that decision and I had committed to it so it was just something that I thought was gonna have to be something to accept and it was it was a loss that I would have to bear. Tasha's new diet didn't go unnoticed by her mom. My mom came downstairs and she was like I noticed you haven't really been drinking milk recently. I was kind of like oh god busted I've been vegan for like four minutes and my mom's already caught me. She was really upset originally. She was like, well, where are you going to get your protein and your calcium? And how are we going to do this? And it's going to be so difficult for us. She just kind of kept going and I just kind of let her go. And about five or ten minutes later, she was suddenly like, "Okay, well, we can go to the store and check out to see if there's any vegan cheese or, you know, we can try to find some more alternatives. And I was like, I don't really know what just happened, but I'm okay with it. I didn't even have to say anything. It was wicked. So suddenly it kind of shifted and we were all eating the same thing at dinner and cooking for four people. I think my mom started to get a little bit more creative in the kitchen and started trying to kind of explore new alternatives and cooking with tofu and just trying new things. Adapting Lebanese Armenian food for vegans wasn't easy for Tasha's mom. There's a lot of dishes where meat is infused into it. Like there will be a ground beef in a stew, which is really common or uh, like chicken in a soup. Two of Tasha's favorite dishes are vine rolls and cabbage rolls, where ground beef plays a starring role. And that's like the one thing where it's like rice and meat 
and a leaf, and that's it. <laughs> so without the meat, it was just like, eh. Like it was fine and flavorful, it's cooked in spices, whatever. But as soon as our mom got her hands on soy-based imitation meat, everything changed. It was like, oh my God, the, ex the, the, like, the possibilities, the flavor explosion, this is incredible. It turned out her mother's cooking and her adaptations of Lebanese-Armenian dishes were so good, they convinced the entire family to go vegan. It went from me being able to eat very little as a vegetarian to being able to eat a lot more as a vegan. Did not expect that. <laughs> People think that it you can only be vegan if you are wealthy and white. When people say that, like they erase my mom who comes from that culture and that stuff is important to her and she's found a way to reconcile those things. Because my mom had been so much more directly connected to it and because she had grown up learning how to make these things and she had grown up actually in Lebanon, I felt like she was in a much better position to adapt those recipes. And even when um, she went vegan, a lot of times I would wait for her to adapt something rather than be like, hey, can we try this and make this vegan? I would wait for her to do that because I still felt like it didn't really belong to me. Um, I'm starting to get out of that now. Um, and I'm starting to kind of explore new recipes on my own. But I think that's that that's another thing that a lot of second gens experience. It's that, you know, that kind of reluctance to adapt. You're stuck trying to figure out like which parts of your culture you want to keep and which ones you want to adapt or reject completely. I've had this exact conversation with my aunt recently. Oh, yeah? Because uh, I've said my family's Jamaican. Uh, my family's also Chinese. Uh, my mom's Chinese Jamaican, and so is my aunt. And I said to them, like, oh, yeah, sure. I mean, vegetarian, I could probably do it, but then I would never be able to eat Jamaican or Chinese food ever again because it's, like, all pork, chicken, and beef. And now I feel like I'm actually just not thinking hard enough. <laughs> yeah, I just got to be a little bit creative. Vegan oxtail. Mm-hmm. As we were collecting food stories for the podcast, we kept hearing about mamas. Everybody had a mom story. And it was the way mom cooked that really got the kids talking. You know, every mom is different, but I think we can agree that they all have some universal quirks. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's true. And you know you grew up on immigrant mom cooking when you always finish your plate and you never waste food. Like, if you had a speck of rice, she would come down on you with the dishonor of 20 generations. <laughs> like, she always had a, back home, we would only dream of this speech, you know? Like, my mom does not know how to make for just two, just for three. She can only make for six to 20. Yep, serves 250. Well, that and, you know, your grocery shopping always takes time. Oh, my gosh. Right? Because you had to get specific ingredients and brands. And she also taught you how to compare fruits and vegetables right like, the, not just the prices, but picking them. So I always felt like a weirdo in no frills going like, plop, plop, plop on everything. And the containers in the fridge are never what you actually think they are. You think yogurt is yogurt, but it's a lie. Yeah, the I can't believe it's not butter just isn't. He can't any. believe it because it's not. <laughs> Open it up and you just see leftovers from last night. And did your mom do this? Like, did she stop you from stealing meat from the pot? Oh, yeah. That was like James yeah. Bond, you know? Now, these habits might sound weird, but they were a part of our mom's culinary traditions. Exactly. Everyone has a role in their family. Like maybe you're the one that all the babies adore or you're the storyteller and you know everyone's embarrassing moments. Oh, that's definitely me. <laughs> 
And through their cooking and their recipes, moms become keepers of tradition. It's kind of like a portable link to home. Because you go to a new country and you can't walk around your old neighborhoods and see the landscape where you grew up for our moms, but you can always make the food that you ate back home. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times it's because of those recipes that they hold on to. It's actually also another accessible way they can keep culture with their kids, you know, because recipes aren't just directions to make food. They can also become stories about, I made this with your dad or I made this with my grandma. I think we actually should be taking more of an active role, though, in keeping their traditions alive. Uh, maybe that means learning their recipes. So, Angeline, do you have a recipe your mom taught you? Uh, well, the thing with my mom is she's an amazing cook, but she doesn't like to cook. Aww. Yeah. So when I was growing up, she didn't like make me come in and help. I actually slowed her down a lot. So I got chewed out of the kitchen more often than not. <laughs> But she has definitely put me to shame sometimes, like when I was trying to make dumplings for the first time. What happened? She was just insulted that I was putting it in the pot. <laughs> Ooh, mom's roast like no other. <laughs> <laughs> no, but still, I love how in families that moms are still the keepers of tradition. Me too. But this next story kind of turns that on its head. How so? Well, instead of sticking to authentic methods, this mom is the queen of shortcuts. Her daughter is Prina Shohan. They co-founded Arvinda's, named after Prina's mom. They teach the classes together, but they don't always see eye to eye. My mom's all about really getting people to actually do the cooking. So it's one thing to learn it, but are you actually going to do it after that? But if it's easy, she knows that people will actually do it. When we're creating a curry from scratch, the main labor where the time goals to create that is actually in caramelizing the onions and it needs to be done a particular way it can't be rushed this is something that needs to be slowly caramelized so all of the the golden color comes through no burnt onions otherwise that's going to come through in the in the actual taste of the curry so there's definitely a lot of technique involved in getting that onion right if we have the onion done in advance we can make any curry probably in about 15 minutes or maybe some of them vegetable curries maybe in 10 minutes one of the tips that she likes to share is perhaps you know if somebody has a little bit of extra time on the on the weekend they can caramelize their onions in a large batch and then they can freeze it and then when they want to make a chickpea curry chana masala on a weeknight then they will pull that out and then just wake it up heat it up a little bit add tomatoes add a can of chickpeas the masala simmer it's done in 10 minutes and so i would always come in and say well you can do that if you're strapped for time but if you really want to achieve that really great flavor i don't advise freezing it because i always notice a little taste that I don't like, and I'm very particular on flavor. And so if something sort of deviates or takes away from that flavor, then I would more likely want to do it fresh and take the extra time to do it. When we share these types of tips and things like that in the class, I'll maybe intervene and just give my opinion. And they all start laughing because they can see the differences in our styles or cooking or, or what we sort of value more, I think. If you're looking for that flavor, this is how you can achieve it. Go the traditional route. And my mom would almost like slap me on the wrist and say, why would you do that when we can do it this way and we can still make it really tasty? My mom has probably cooked every single day of her life. She's learned how to make cooking really efficient. I'm a little bit more striving for authenticity. And I think one of the reasons why is probably because I'm born in Canada 
and I'm trying to grasp and hold on to a lot of that tradition in the sense of I want to pass that on to my future kids and my future generation and I want to give them those recipes. At the end of the day, my mom, anytime that we're cooking together, anytime that we're teaching together, my mom is the boss in the kitchen. She kind of has the final say no matter what. I guess mama knows best after all. <laughs> yep, class dismissed. Our next mom knows a lot of things, but her son reveals that cooking was not one of her strengths. Let's meet Ben Lotens. He's been a sous chef, he's worked in agriculture, and he really cares about the whole process of cooking, from farm to stove to table. It sounds like he lives and breathes the food industry. Definitely. So what he says next about his mama and this meal she made for him as a kid, know that it comes from a good place. My mom used to boil everything. Just put it on a pot and boil it together. Put the lid on and just basically let it steam itself to death. So a really classic Dutch dish um, that everybody I know who has Dutch background knows this dish and can smell it a mile away if it's cooking um, is uh, boerenkool. It's uh, B-O-E-R-E-N-K-O-O-L, which like roughly translates to farmer's kale. And it's this, oh, it's awful. It's so bad. It's so bad. It's potatoes and kale from a can. I don't think you've ever seen kale from a can, but it's really gross. They like pack this kale in and it's like in a brown kind of like watery syrup, like all this liquid that's been uh, compressed out of the kale and then onions and like some mustard and stuff like that. And then you boil that in a pan together, strain off the water and then mash it all together with salt and pepper and a little bit more mustard and stuff like that. So very mustard heavy, um, but it's also just like, it's, it's simultaneously mushy and stringy and like sour and salty and oh man, I as a kid I just push it around my plate. I would just like try and like make like a mashed potato volcano or like like make like a nice landscape. Oh, it was brutal. Oh, it was so brutal. It's not that my mom's a bad cook. They were young, they were freshly married, um, they were in a totally new country, they knew very few people. Um, and so my mom, I think was trying to make the most of, yeah, the most of what she knew about cooking. Um, she didn't really, uh, have anyone to teach her cooking while she was an adult. So she did the best she could. Um, she tried to figure it out on her own, but I mean, I think those ingredients don't really lend themselves super well to being treated quickly, um, or being boiled to death or being oversalted, it's just like a, a, a match made in hell. Ben thinks he knows why his mom's cooking might have emphasized sustenance over flavor. My parents were born in the 50s, post-war. Um, so they were born in the very early 50s and the Netherlands was kind of reacting to um, all of these like uh, shortages that they had during the war. Um, Netherlands was occupied by um, the German invasion. The Nazi regime drastically cut food supplies in the Netherlands during the Second World War, leading to a months-long famine. The Dutch survived on hardy vegetables and even potato peels and tulip bulbs. Thousands starved to death before help came. 
As an adult, I realized that she was trying to, to hand us a cultural heritage and saying like, okay, this is where we come from. This is who we were. This is who we are. Um, this is the place we inhabited at that point in time. Like, uh, this food is a, is a, a segment of our history as people, um, and we're trying to hand it down. And as I learned a little bit more about cooking, my imagination started to go and try and see how I could take all of those component parts of, um, the dishes that my mom would cook. So this boar and coal dish and, um, do them in a little bit of a different way, but it's still in the same kind of combinations um, and treat them with a little bit more love and a little bit more, you know, browning um, and not boil anything and, you know, be a little bit more reserved with the salt. So I, I remade this dish for my family once and I was like, hey, like, see, see if you like it. See if it like, you know, it's, it's better than you've ever had it before. They were so nonplussed. They're like, mm, I like mom's better. I did all this work to like try and bring something into a realm where it's, you know, actually a really solid dish, right? Like a really, really great dish. And my family was just kind of like, eh, eh, it's okay. Yeah, it's all right. It's never as good as when your mom makes it. So I think there's something about mom's cooking that... It's just better when it's made by somebody that loves you inside and out. It just, the food just tastes better when it comes from your mom. See, food can really like take on your energy. Have you ever heard that you should like sing to your food to make it taste better? What? No. I swear. I've never heard this. It, it's a Tiffany Haddish thing. She makes like these happy greens. She like <laughs> sings while she's cooking it and then she makes some happy greens. And it tastes better. It, it tastes better. And that's why it's like when you, your mom makes it, it's full of love. When you sing to it, it's full of music. Ooh, okay. Well, if Mama Lotens is listening, I hope she knows that her love and her care did not go unnoticed. That's all Born and Raised is serving up for today. I'm Angela Francis. And I'm Aldonado. If you've got room for seconds, mom insists you have some more. To see photos of our guests, read show notes, and the episode's transcript, you can visit HuffPost.ca. Born and Raised is produced by Aldonado and Stephanie Werner for HuffPost Canada. Executive producers Andre Lau and Lisa Young. Stay tuned for our next episode, where we tackle the classic second-gen dilemma of fitting in. I had to go to Seoul, Korea to visit family. And while there... I had probably the most ridiculous food experience of my life. <laughs> Until our next episode, thanks for listening. Stay hungry.